This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I don't have too many people I can boss around, so it's really nice to have at least one. <laughs> Amen. There are places here if somebody would like to sit. Um, I am definitely going to keep this shorter than an hour um, because I think that it's nice to, to use whatever's left of the hour for questions. And um, I'd love to have lots of questions. So let me begin. In order to enter into the spirit of this talk, I think that it is best for me to start with a quotation from St. Augustine. He's addressing the Manichees, a dissident sect among um, Christians who had strong opinions about good and evil, about the God of the Old Testament and of the New. And he's writing shortly after becoming a bishop. So he says, that you may more readily be gentle and not fight against me with a hostile attitude that is destructive. I have to ask that both sides set arrogance aside. Let neither of us say he has already found the truth. Let us seek it as if neither of us knows it. For if there is no rash presumption about having or knowing the truth, then it can be sought diligently and harmoniously. Augustine's words allow me to say something similar. Let's listen fairly to the views of these men rather than begin with the belief that we know what they think before we have begun. Let me also say something about the potential benefit of listening in, as it were, on the conversation that I'm about to invent. I'm presuming that they each have some familiarity with the work of the other, and that they choose to talk about their own, and I choose to talk about their own down-to-earth impressions of one another's thought about the beginning. Let me also say a word or two about that which may allow them to see below the surface of one another's lives and of one another's thoughts. The passion that motivated Augustine to study creation again and again and to find in creation a reflection of the creator is quite remarkable. He wrote several books on the book of Genesis and he often talks about creation in other parts of his work. The passion that motivates Stephen Hawking to study the universe again and again, to find new ways to appreciate the complexities of cosmology and of gravitational interactions is also remarkable. Even though they are talking about the same world, they see it with very different eyes. Is there any hope of their having a civil conversation? Yes. Both of them are restless seekers, acutely aware of the potential impact of their words 
and thoughts on others. Both of them take the observation of the world as foundational for their thinking. Neither of them spends a lot of time in the laboratory doing experiments of one kind or another. But they both engage very actively in what Augustine would have called exercitatio mentis, or what Einstein called experiments of the mind. Those experiments are, I believe, foundational, both for the scientist and for the theologian. Hawking and Augustine both see their work as collaborative, sharing whenever possible with others and testing the boundaries of knowledge, the boundaries of scientia. Augustine's view of the world is heavily influenced by a few words from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in that which he has made. Hawking's view of the world is not guided by any biblical text. But his interest in that which cannot be seen or touched is explicit. Using observation to come to a greater appreciation of that which is not seen. As he wrote in his latest book, The Grand Design, in the case of subatomic sub particles that we can't see, electrons are a useful model that explains observations like tracks in a cloud chamber and the spots on a television tube, as well as many other phenomena. It is said that the electron was discovered in 1897 by British physicist J.G. Thompson. Thompson did not see an electron, Hawking writes, nor was his speculation directly or unambiguously demonstrated by his experiments. But the model has proved crucial in applications from fundamental science to engineering, and today all physicists believe in electrons, even though you cannot see them." End quote. So Hawking uses this thinking about electrons, or about quarks, or squarks, or who knows what, to develop something he calls model-dependent realism, a framework for discussing the world and for supporting the possibility of a multiverse, many universes. At one point in his book, he noted the contrast of his model with the account found in the book of Genesis, which he thought was Augustine's model. What he knows, what Hawking knows about the Bible comes, he says, from having listened to his father read it to him, as well as from the efforts of another scientist by the name of Page, who tried to convert him in the 1970s. But in the grand design, Hawking rejects the literal interpretation of, of Genesis, the view that he thought Augustine held, seemingly 
unaware of the fact that there are other ways of looking at the meaning of the words of Genesis. Hence, it is not likely that their brief exchange will deal with Genesis at all. That's unfortunate. It will limit their conversation. But their common interest in understanding the natural world does at least give them a place to begin. Hawking is totally focused on the laws of nature. He's constantly looking for any trace of the laws which govern nature and which allow him to do without the presence or work of a miracle-working and manipulative God. In the grand design, in fact, he speaks about the creation of the world, but never recognizes that any creation needs a creator, presumably because the image of, of God that he has in his mind is perceived as subverting science rather than encouraging it. Augustine is clearly attentive to God as creator. His image of God cannot be anything like the God that Hawking envisions. As I discovered parallels in their observational habits, I began to wonder in their conversation across, across a time-space warp whether they might not agree that the God against whom Hawking argues is a God against whom Augustine would also argue. But before making such a rash prediction of the outcome of their conversation, let us listen to the exchange between a, between a 21st century Cambridge, England scientist and a 5th century Hipporagius bishop. In spite of appearances, I am not suggesting that this conversation proves the existence of or even the possibility of time travel. We'll do that at another time. Augustine begins, Stephen, since I'm older than you, let me begin. Age does have its prerogative. I'm sure you already know my interest in wisdom and in discovering the truth. It's been a lifelong passion. It was not until after I turned 40 that I realized that thinkers in my time and well before my time kept their thoughts and their practices separate, or excuse me, their thoughts and theories separate from their everyday lives. I understand that there, were, there are people in your time who think that there's a conflict between thinking and believing, between science and religion. Aren't scientists and believers both seeking the same truth? Isn't the truth we seek bigger than any one of us, bigger than all of us? Stephen responds, I'm not a religious man because I see too many people who use religion to stop others from exploring the world. 
They use the Bible, for example, to say things about the world that have been proven wrong. Your church condemned Galileo some time ago, all because of a disrespect for his work and understanding the world. But he was right. I recently wrote about you in my book, The Grand Design. You say that time did not exist before creation. And you seemed to believe that creation had not occurred that long ago. I know your model is favored by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is literally true. Even though the world contains fossils and other evidence that makes it look much older. Can't you see how faith and religion get in the way of good science? Augustine, ah yes, I see what you mean. But there's no need to ignore the Bible because of other people's mistakes. They did that in my time too. But I explained in one of my commentaries on Genesis that they would ruin things for everybody else. I ask those who talk about Genesis not to use Genesis to say silly things about science or the world. I wrote, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of the world. And this knowledge he holds to as being certain from reason and from experience. Now it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for such a person to hear a Christian talking nonsense on these topics as if he is interpreting Holy Scripture." End quote. The shame is not so much that an ignorant Christian is laughed at, but that people outside the household of faith think the sacred writers held such opinions. It is a great loss to those for whose salvation we toil when the writers of our scriptures are criticized and rejected as unlearned men. Stephen, well said. I'm not really surprised. So I guess you can also see that there's no need for any religious scripture when it comes to science. These fields are just separate. Religion gets in the way of trying to figure out the laws of nature. Those who read the Bible don't have anything that can be discovered. They don't have anything to say that will help discover and describe the beginning of the world or the infinite possibilities that can be discovered by dealing with nature and the observable consequences of the laws of nature. That's especially true today, since we have learned so much more about the world than you could have known about string theory, about black holes. After all, a quantum beginning holds every possible history of the universe within it. What's the point of talking about a divine beginning? It has no observable consequences. Augustine, we certainly disagree about that. Surprise. Although I can't talk about quantum theory or black holes, it is not clear to me that you are all that convinced either. Just last year you wrote, quote, it is almost impossible to be rigorous 
in quantum physics because the whole field is on very shaky mathematical ground, end quote. Besides, what sense could it really make to ignore a part of human experience? Even if the physical eye can't make out its size, its shape, its color. When I study the Word of God, I am increasing the possibility of understanding because I don't limit myself to material things. I get a chance to read the human heart, both now and in the past, so as to discern the traces of God's presence in human hearts rather than in cloud chambers. And to discern the moments of illumination in people's experiences rather than limiting myself to the spots of light on television tubes. People understand that there's a world of spirit. Creation by God is not as problematic as you make it. But it seems to me that when you talk about M-theory, you're talking about God, a very different God. Isn't that what M-theory is saying? It's supposed to explain everything, isn't it? Isn't that what you say? Is M-theory even accepted by all of your colleagues? What is M-theory? And what are the, the observable consequences of your M-theory? As I wrote in The Grand Design, quote, in the history of science, we have discovered a sequence of better and better theories or models, from Plato to the classical theory of Newton to modern quantum theories. It is natural to ask, will this sequence eventually reach an end point, an ultimate theory of the universe? I continued, we do not yet have a definitive answer to that question, but we now have a candidate for the ultimate theory of everything, if one exists, called M-theory. Later in that same book, he continues, we will describe how M-theory may offer answers to the question of creation. According to that theory, ours is not the only universe. Instead, M-theory predicts that a great many universes were created out of nothing. Their creation does not require the intervention of some supernatural being or God. Rather, these multiple universes arise naturally from physical law. They are a prediction of science. Although we are puny and insignificant on the scale of the cosmos, this makes us, in a sense, lords of creation. To understand the universe at the deepest level, we need to know not only how the universe behaves, but why. Augustine, wow. After saying or after talking about all that complexity, you didn't even talk about the 11 space-time dimensions and the point particles, two-dimensional membranes, three-dimensional blobs and other objects that are more difficult to picture and occupy even more dimensions of space, up to nine. 
It reminds me of some people who lived in my time, the Manichees. They dreamed up all sorts of weird ideas and combinations about good and evil, about the interaction of parts of the world. Like them, you have made things awfully complicated. I much prefer a God that I can talk to and that I, know will, that I know will always be there. My God didn't just create everything from nothing, but he's still somehow part of the process. Isn't it a waste of time working so hard to fight against the Creator God and then having to speculate so wildly about how time stops with inside, time stops inside black holes and how quantums generate spontaneously? Who can understand that? Stephen. Eventually, I do want to discover and describe a complete theory whose broad principle can be understood by everyone, not just by a few scientists. As I wrote in A Brief History of Time many years ago, then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be an ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we would know the mind of God." End quote. Augustine, that sounds very pretentious. I didn't think you believed in God. Stephen. I still don't think any God adds anything to the discussion. In your view, it is accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator, and that entity is called God. This is known as the first cause argument for the existence of God. We claim, however, that it is possible to answer these questions purely within the realm of science without invoking any divine beings. I am not denying God's existence. It's just not relevant. Because gravity shapes time and space, it allows space-time to be locally stable but globally unstable. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue torch paper and set the universe going. Augustine, so you're using science to explain everything. You wrote about how people don't understand you, saying, quote, no one seems to know what the M in M theory stands for. But it may be master, miracle, or mystery. It seems to be all three." End quote. Augustine continues, it seems to me that your M theory is taking the place that God has occupied for a very long time. Why should I accept a theory that tries to take over the role of God 
You're asking me to believe in your why. Is that because it's new? I much prefer the relationship I already have with God. That means I can talk about creation, about salvation, about lots of other things that matter in a day-to-day -day way. Besides, I've seen people give their life for God. Would anyone do that for M-theory? <coughs> Stephen, I have lived with the prospect of an early death for the last 49 years. I am not afraid of death, and I am in no hurry to die. I have so much I want to do first. I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven, no afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. I am giving my life to advance our knowledge of the universe, even to show that we are not a single universe. What makes your martyrs better than that? Gustin, true, there's no heaven for broken computers. But giving one's life is not a matter of how much trouble or pain anyone goes through. Those who gave their life for my God were not naive about the afterlife as if it were a figment of their imagination. Their faith allowed them to see beyond space and time. Just as your faith seems to concentrate on anything and everything between times and between spaces. But we may have to agree to disagree about God and heaven and eternity. But still, wh why do you keep saying that God is irrelevant? Stephen, science is about the laws of nature, not about miracles or a God who intervenes in haphazard ways that keep us from trying to find answers about how things really work. I don't need faith in God to be a good scientist. Augustine, I believe in the laws of nature too. What's wrong with saying that God started it all? Providing the energy for the Big Bang, setting all the laws of nature in place so that from the tiniest point of energy, the whole process could take its time in unfolding, in evolving into that, it, that which is and that which will be. I presume that you know my view on the seeds of reason, the raciones seminales. God does not have to be reinventing the process again and again. The laws were part of the initial code written within the energy of the Big Bang. That doesn't contradict your M theory, since there had to be a beginning for both. There you go again, Stephen says. Why not just let creation do it all spontaneously? God is not relevant, and you have not proven any relevance that I can see. Okay, Augustine says, that's right. Faith is a gift. I can't prove my point unless there's already a certain acceptance. But just because you're saying you don't need faith is no reason to deny everyone else's. You state your case so strongly that you lead me to wonder what you will say when the stark emotion you have expressed more than once 
calms down. You always find it necessary to write about God. In your books, A Brief History of Time, in My Brief History, in The Grand Design, your interviews, you never fail to mention God. Let's make a bet. Since I see that you work well with others, and you have people of high standards and clear affection as very much a part of your life, I bet you that we'll meet again when you have moved beyond your 11-dimensional universe. In fact, I bet an eternity on it. Stephen, I see why so many people today want to read you. You're quite a debater. When I can no longer do any space-time musings, we'll see who wins that bet, even if nobody else knows. Now our guests have left us. Let me continue to ask how this brief, respectful exchange between Stephen Hawking and Augustine of Hippo went. Is there any takeaway? What did they show us? Let me make a few comments. You will be able to make comments on your own shortly. I wanted to imagine this conversation because I often straddle the centuries in my work. I think that we could tell them who were of another time or age many things that they were desperate to know about. And they tell us many things that we are desperate to hear. I guess that's another way of saying that our progress would be, interested, would be interesting to people like Augustine. Their wisdom ought to be interesting to us. We enter into conversation with the past, not just to find out what they thought, but to use their experience to discern the present. What might Augustine contribute to our own interest in the beginning of the world? I think he's a good example of how an ancient scholar could read Genesis in a nuanced, non-literal way, without stepping aside from the need for keen observation and without denying the central place of creation in Christian tradition. Even Galileo turned to Augustine when he was trying to communicate the meaning of his scientific observations. He thought that Augustine's nuanced approach to Genesis would keep him from running afoul of the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. But those authorities didn't know Augustine. And so they failed to appreciate the validity of Galileo's scientific research or hermeneutical understanding of Genesis. I think we have a similar challenge today. Every time somebody tries to show that there is a disagreement, almost a war, between science and theology, they fail to recognize how both science and theology contribute to the truth. From Augustine's point of view, the apparent contradictions are not a problem, but a stimulus to reconcile them. Augustine did not think that the world was created in six days. 
he saw there was a symbolic image full value in using the six-day framework to describe a much larger process. And even though he didn't espouse anything like Darwin's theory of evolution, and his theory on the seeds of reason only approximates something similar to evolution, it is at least clear that Augustine could accept much of what is said about evolution today as long as that which is called natural selection is not completely random and arbitrary. The presence and participation of God in the subtlest, way, subtlest of ways in the development of the original creation would clearly be preferable to him than a belief in a controlling God who constantly intervenes and against whom Stephen Hawking also argued. Finally, I think it remains very important to see the consequences of the apparently simple statement that there is not one truth for theology and another one for science or natural philosophical knowledge. No one field of endeavor can pretend to have all the data nor all the answers. Hence, I think it's, it's very significant when people agree to talk to dialogue, to struggle with the differences and even contradictions that arise in the world among us. This little conversation may be more important because it happened than it ever could be important because of what I put into it. <coughs> Theologians, I, I do not subscribe to the theory that the natural sciences are one thing and the theological sciences are another. Theologians and scientists both have an important role to play and discipline to uphold. Stephen Hawking obviously betrays any sense of science as limited to the merely material universe or multiverse. His imagination can be stunning. His curiosity contagious. How much more interesting might his work be if his conversation with theologians from today or from afar were to continue. Thank you. Did I go over? Oh, lots of time for questions. Please make me squirm. Yes. Father um, Hawking's idea of uh, the universe coming into being through some sort of you know, quantum event, um, that idea, you could say, is it means that, that the existence of the universe is consistent with, let's say, physical science, but it doesn't demand that that, that, that happen. Um, Meaning it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I need to add anything to that, right? And you know quantum physics a lot better than I ever will. <laughs> Peter. I, I still find myself wondering, but I appreciate how you 
forced us to wonder why it is that Stephen Hawking keeps bringing up God. And let me just raise one question, which I think Augustine might have to, would, would certainly be attuned to, which is, is it just rhetoric when he brings it up? Is he just kind of manipulating us, knowing that we have feelings about it, or many of us do, and so, and he, maybe he wants to sell his books, but beyond that, it seems as though you suggested that he doesn't really mean much of anything meaningful. I think Stephen Hawking shows again and again that he is part of the world in which you and I live. And most of the people around him talk about God, how could he not? So I don't think, that, I don't think there's a kind of a subtle, I want to sell my books or, um, you know, I'm giving up my soul to believe in God so much as he's in constant interaction. Several of the books he's written, you know, obviously physically he's not doing the, 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 the writing. He's, He's got help not only for the, the physical production, but also the, um, the reflection process that is part of that. So um, I, I'm not entirely convinced that Stephen Hawking is an atheist because I see the God he's fighting against isn't my God. Um, but he has all the trappings, and perhaps because so many people around him are constantly challenging him in one way or another, um, that finding the words is difficult, especially if you don't have a theological background, as he <laughs> does not. So I, I tried to read him beyond face value and, and to respect the fact that he needs to talk about God, if not for some deep inner reason, at least because other people are talking about God. So I think it's a very genuine um, problematic that he, that he faces. <laughs> Someone else who might have read Stephen more than I could certainly add to that. Uh, I have not read him, but does Hawking answer the question, why is there anything at all? I would take it anything to him means nature. So maybe the question is, why does nature exist? And I remember that philosopher Spinoza thought nature was another name for God. Mm -hmm. um, he, he raises the question more than once in more than one work uh, of why do we exist at all, and he sees that as the, um, let's call it, the goal of his searching. He, he wants to be able someday to have a sufficiently broad theory um, that his in theory should, should be expansive enough to include answers to that question, um, which is another sign, in other words, of the of the intellectual honesty of the man, he doesn't have an answer. And, and, and that intellectual honesty seemed to me the, the, the only reason I could even pretend there was a conversation. I've said to the students in my class that some of my most interesting conversations have often been with atheists because they're, they're, they're attacked by everybody. And so they've got to come up with good answers. They've got to think it through. And so it ends up being, in, in some ways, a stimulus to all of us to be just as good and at trying to say, well, why do we exist at all? It's not as if Christians have a full answer to that either. Is there a difference between the question, why do we exist, and why does anything exist? Nice, nice refinement, yes. I'm not sure what the, how the answer differs, but... Um, I don't have the answer to either of them, so I'm not sure how to distinguish them. <laughs>
I think you said that Augustine would accept evolution as long as the principles of natural selection aren't completely arbitrary. Yes. I think you said that. I did. Um, causes me to wonder uh, what principles, uh, are you talking about the, how mutations work when you refer to those principles, and why would Augustine accept that? Meaning Augustine's sense that, that God isn't there kind of um, like the Wizard of Oz um, manipulating all the subjects in the kingdom or all the events that happen. And since Augustine could never have imagined evolution as Darwin proposed it and as we have continued to develop it, I was trying to find a way of saying um, Augustine believed that these raciones seminales, these rational seeds or seeds of reason, as I translated it, um, is that, that somehow God is in eternity. And God doesn't decide successively because there is no succession. So all at once, God made this picture. And Augustine said, and that expresses itself in the way that matter that came from God finds a way to to grow, to, to become more complex, to eventually lead to human life and so forth. Um, I think he would have a great problem challenge in answering the question, well, when did a soul get, was the soul come out of matter or did it, was it infused by God? I'm not sure he would have a clear answer to that. But th there would be a, a certain rationality or organization to the growth, so not entirely random was the phrase I chose to, to use to say that. Um, it got me off the hook in two ways. I said something positive, and I didn't pretend that I knew something really about biology. <laughs> so I really was being clever, and you picked that one up. <laughs> Other comments? Oh. Jerry. Alan, thank you. I enjoyed that. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, the Polish philosopher and priest Józef Tischner, once wrote, he never met a person who stopped believing in God after reading Marx, Nietzsche, or Freud, but he met many a person who stopped believing in God after a conversation with his pastor or her pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm wondering, you mentioned that Stephen Hawking's father uh, read, read the Bible to him. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you know or have read about him that may have driven him away from religion? No. Um, interesting question. He, he spoke about the this meetings he had with a fellow scientist who decided he was going to convert him, and, and that certainly didn't help the process. Um, but he doesn't speak of bringing anything bad to or taking anything away from that conversation. It was just like, he, but he remembered it. Um, I, forget what, I, I used the man's name, I forget. But he was a fellow scientist. He decided, I'm going to convert this man. And um, Stephen Hawking was already somewhat physically confined at that point. So I suspect that he took it even less positively. Um, but good, good, good observation. Yes. Um, so did, was there some event in Stephen's Hawking life whereby he decided away from God because of something that happened? 
And I said, well, his father read him the Bible, so he had at least a rudimentary understanding of, of the words on the page. And in the early 1970s, um, he, a fellow scientist tried to convert him. And that could not have been a positive experience. Uh, we find no further trace of that scientist. But I don't have any, he never said anything about somehow that was a negative, but he did remember it. So your reference, in talking about the medical notes, you're saying maybe Stephen's illness itself had some impact on how he thought of God. Entirely possible. Um, I was confronted several times in my reading and preparation with the possibility of bringing that up, and I felt that it would be pretentious on my part to try to walk into that, um, that particular possibility. Um, meaning I knew I was going to impose some of my image on the, the conversation if I tried to do that, so I did leave it out. Um, <laughs> it was not easy. <laughs> Any other thoughtful hands? Any other, any silly questions? Sometimes they're the best ones. Over here. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, he's interested in knowing if people would be willing to say, are you oriented toward philosophy, theology, or toward science? Those who wish, how many are oriented more toward science? More toward philosophy or theology? So more science than that. Why, why would you ask? Intellectual curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question but that I was trying to do that. I, I, faithful to who I am, yes. <laughs> um, but it was also a, a, a nice chance to exploit my, my young interest in physics and, um, and the sciences, so it seemed to me that it was a nice, a nice marriage uh, to try to put this one together. There's, there's a, a, an ACS course this semester taught by Angela DiBenedetto and um, Alan Pashanik which is trying to hold together the arts and the sciences and, and to work through the semester with those two themes present. And the only, normally I'm the one that calls people and asks them to come give the talk. And not only was I a little late to get someone for this semester, but it seemed better if someone on campus could do it so as to be able to interact more fully with their class. Um, so I bit the bullet and, um, hope that, among other things, that 
this lecture and, and others will, will help all of us appreciate how the College of Arts and Sciences isn't two colleges. It's arts and sciences meant to work together. It's like Hawking and Augustine. I mean, there's no reason why they should have a conversation other than the fact that we're all involved in the same adventure of trying to figure out what the truth is. And you know, scientists and, and, um, and humanists need to be doing the same thing. So that was the rationale behind the talk to begin with um, and the occasion. I can't have exhausted Steve. I don't have a question, but just more reflection. I like how you bring Hawking and theory and Augustine's theology and say it's, we're all both talking about the same thing, but just using two different textual languages. I like how you brought the two together. Uh, this sense of reaching for the horizons. You know, whether, whether you are an everyday person, a theologian, a scientist, or whatever, the day we stop reaching for whatever horizon lies before us is the day we, we start to die. And, you know, maybe building on what Michael was saying that, you know, it's quite incredible that a man like Stephen Hawking would still, in his physical state, have so much passion for science. And it just seemed to me that it was too beautiful to ignore that and, and that that needed, like Augustine, who never stopped questioning. They, they seemed to me to be people who could have this conversation and probably will have this conversation um, face to face at some point. So, you know, that, that, that reaching for the horizon, I think, is something that no matter whether one's a scientist or a theologian or whatever, I, I think that's what our task is as, um, as human beings. So um, you can probably find without any difficulty my, my email address, um, questions that you might not have wanted to ask here. I'd be more than happy to, to struggle with them later, um, but at least feel invited. And I thank you all for coming.